he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you who have already received, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you that are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So I've mentioned before um, that scholars, some scholars, suggest that the book of Psalms is not just, is not merely a collection of an assortment of various songs and poems and prayers that going through this that book, there is this, there's an argument back and forth that runs through the collection as a whole. So and it's in a formal debate, you know, you have, you know, you have one side arguing the case for this a certain proposition, and you have the other side making the case against that proposition. And these scholars suggest that this the proposition that's being argued throughout the rest of the Psalms is laid out here in Psalm 1. That's the proposition, Psalm 1. This assertion that if one conducts your life righteously, blessings will follow. You will be like a a tree planted by streams of water. You'll yield your fruit in due season, and whatever you do, you prosper. Using the natural world to sort of illustrate this prosperous life is appropriate because the the psalm is picking up themes that we find lots of places in scriptures, but in, say, uh, Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs chapter 8, you get the personification of wisdom, wisdom or Sophia, of the Sophia of God. And Sophia is displayed as ordering nature and the well-ordered life. Uh, So the fact that there is integrity to all the operations of creation is testimony to her work, to her presence. Um, So to say uh, the person who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree that bears fruit uh, near a fresh water source, it's like both are in touch with Sophia. 
But of course, there are other Psalms that say, listen, not so fast, Psalm 1. There's a counter argument to be made here. And there are plenty of arguments. Psalms in the book of Psalms that make this counter argument. In fact, if you put the various Psalms in their categories, the category that's the largest is lament. And laments aren't opposed to the idea that the world is ordered according to God's wisdom. They're not opposed. They'd love that. They're just saying that's not the world we have. That's, that's the world we, we wish we had that world, but we just don't. So they cry out. My God, my God, you know, like, how long, O Lord, is this going to work this way? How long are the righteous going to be stomped on, the innocent taken advantage of? How long are the wicked going to thrive? How long are the violent going to get their way? So it's a complicated question because, well, there's some truth to both those things. And the debate really doesn't get settled in the book of Psalms, although the tone is ultimately hopeful. It's this ongoing debate. You hear echoes of Psalm 1 uh, in, say, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. They shall be like a tree planted by water, sending out its roots by the stream. It shall not fear when heat comes, and its leaves shall stay green. In the year of drought, it is not anxious, and it does not cease to bear fruit. If you, then you want to ask Jeremiah, well, yeah, well, okay, I hear you, but how do you make sense of the fact that things go otherwise, go in different directions? Why, why won't people, why don't so many people choose to go that route? And Jeremiah in the next verse says, look, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? All right, so the heart is sort of a trickster. Uh, and that's why people don't live according to wisdom. Uh, you can see some of these, the same debate even in our um, Declaration of Independence, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Self-evident. In other words, equality is not something that needs to be argued. It's self-evident. It is just natural. It's just the way things are. It's how the universe works woven into the structure of reality like the laws of gravity. Now, if, I don't know what you may have been taught about where the founders get this idea of equality. Um, I mean, most time they emphasize, well, emphasize their um, products of the Enlightenment, you know, and philosophers like John Locke and Rousseau and Voltaire. But then you can ask the question, well, where did they get that idea? Uh, oftentimes, with their credit, the, the uh, Greek philosophers are given credit, or another, other uh, people say, "Well, no, they get this from the Bible, right?" After all, they say they are endowed by their Creator uh, with these uh, al- inalienable rights. But either way, there is this idea: this is how the world just sort of works. We need to live according to. What they would, I mean, reason is what they would emphasize, but we, reason and wisdom and Sophia, there's real resonance there. Now, that's the story we're often told. I, I have learned to question that story based on the book I mentioned a couple weeks ago called The Dawn of Everything, A New History 
of Humanity by the Davids, David Graeber and David Wengro. The Davids call, this, call that into question. First of all, they say, the Greeks don't talk about equality. It's not there. And they, they don't mention it, but it's true that the term equality doesn't really show up in the Bible either. Um, though it's, I think it's clearly uh, I mean, there, but that, the idea that it's, it, that, that term certainly is not. David suspect is that really what prompted this whole way of thinking was a discovery made in the late 15th century by someone named Christopher Columbus. This new world that they found turned out to be occupied. And the Davids point out that some of the most popular books that were printed shortly after that were accounts of these Jesuit missionaries and their attempts to evangelize tribes over in the New World, people they called Americans. Uh, in this case, the, the, the tribes that the Jesuits were dealing with are from Quebec area. And the Jesuits do not have a lot of luck. You know, they would come in and say, take me to your leader. And their idea, the idea was, yeah, we'll meet this leader, we'll convert the leader, the leader will make everybody else convert. That's the way it just naturally works. That's the way it works in Europe, right? That's the natural order. But no, the, the tribes are like, uh, well, you know, we sometimes go to that guy for advice, but you know, the, we make decisions for ourselves, for what's in our own best interest. All right, so now the missionaries are, well, okay, now we gotta convert these people one at a time. Well, it turns out that wasn't easy either. Mainly because they're not particularly impressed with these pale visitors. They point out, you know, most of you aren't real intelligent. And the Jesuits would say, okay, okay, you're talking about those fur trappers? Yes, they're not very intelligent. We get that, you just gotta ignore them. They were never educated. And the natives would say, well, why weren't they educated? Because the parents can't afford to educate them. And then the Native Americans would say, well, see, that's another thing about you people. You're selfish. I mean, they could have benefited from education, and yet you withheld it from them. And then the, the Jesuits would say, oh, okay, I said ignore them. You got to think about yourself. You got to think about, uh, you got to convert, or you're going to go to hell. And then they, well, that's another thing. I, I'm not, we're not particularly keen on that idea. Because hell was this individual punishment for a failure to convert. But these tribes, they didn't, they didn't punish someone for wrongdoing. If someone committed a wrong, it was the responsibility of the community to make things right. Then to the missionary's surprise, this lack of punishment did not lead to chaos. I mean, there's sort of a begrudging respect on the part of the Jesuit missionaries for the fact that you know, they're, they're relatively moral well-behaved people. Anyway, these journals fascinated people in Europe. Uh, and they took, and sometimes they would, there were Americans that would be toured around Europe to get in these debates, and, and, uh, and the elites from a European society would come and have their sort of minds blown because, wow, they'd never thought about the world working any other way than it did. And so, the Davids argue, you know, it's probably here that starts the line of thinking about equality. It's these sorts of 
opportunities to sort of reflect on your own society that leads to revolutionary kinds of thinking. Well, then why aren't we told that that's where it comes from? Well, because if that, if we, if that were the version we gave, we, it would be harder for us to feel good about conquering those people, which is what we wanted to do. We wanted their land. So we wanted a version of that thinking that protected Europeans' sense of cultural superiority. You know, and that's why I think even today, I mean, we find ourselves in a post-enlightenment or a post-modern society because we become suspicious of people who promote their ideas as somehow reflective of some larger order. You know, that there's a suspicion that, oh, oh really, that's just the way things are? And they're like, okay, what's your, what's your real agenda here? I think an example of that would be like Black Lives Matter. I mean, their response to that was like, wait, listen here, all lives matter, right? I mean, that's that idea of equality that comes out of the Enlightenment. But then that people get that makes people suspicious. Why, why are you wanting to say all lives matter? Is it really about equality? After all, we talk about equality under the law, and yet there appears to be one form of justice for white people and one form of justice for brown people. So if is, are you saying all lives matter just to attempt to ignore that, to gloss over that? The way Jefferson could sort of ignore and gloss over the fact that he could say all people are created equal and yet he had people in his possession that he considered his property? Like Jeremiah said, the heart is devious. Who can understand it? Anyway, Psalm 1. It's not our only reading. There is from the gospel. We hear from Jesus. And it's worth considering what he has to say about this larger debate. Well, what he says in our passage on one level sort of blows up the whole debate altogether. After all, the discussion here is whether a particular way of living is, is so attuned to the way the world just works that it thrives like a tree planted by streams of water. Is there a life that exhibits values and priorities that are just baked into the creation, that are just self-evident. And while there may be a good deal that you can debate about that question, there are certain things that we think, well, we could take it as an assumption. One assumption would be, hey, you know what? You're not thriving. You're not like a tree by planting by streams of water if you lack the resources to live. If you're poor or hungry, you're not really thriving when people hate you and persecute you. I mean, that would that seems to be something you want to avoid. You would think we could all agree on that. Well, not all of us agree on that, apparently. There are exceptions. Well, there's one big exception, and it happens to be Jesus. You know, Jesus appears to be walking by a low-income house and go, these folks, they've got it right. Hey, you don't know where your next meal's coming from? Aren't you just living the dream? Or... Hey, there's an angry mob chanting your name at the door. Look at you, Mr. Unpopular. Congratulations. No. And then, well, and then to make matters worse, he has some things to say 
to people whose lives appear to be prospering. Folks who do seem to be living the dream. The rich, well-fed, well-liked. Boy, have you botched things. Woe to you, I would not want to be in your shoes. Your high-priced, fashionable shoes that everyone says you look great in. I mean, if we're honest, what Jesus says in these verses, if they were said by your neighbor, you just sort of smile and nod and then turn your back and roll your eyes. Like, whoa, what is that person thinking? But because it's Jesus, we can't respond that way. First of all, even if your back is turned, he can see you roll your eyes. He's Jesus. Secondly, there must be something more to this. Because one of the things we'd want to say about Jesus is that he is the embodiment of Psalm 1. No one ever demonstrated a life more aligned with the grain of the universe than he did. He does not just meditate on the law, on God's word. He is God's word. He is the word made flesh. So you want to say, well, does that cause his life to prosper? Well, think about the passage we read last week. Peter and the disciples, they fish all night and come up empty. Jesus says, go ahead, drop your nets. And suddenly they have so many fish that the two boats that bring it in nearly sink. You know, this is Jesus who feeds uh, 5,000 with two loaves, or five loaves and two fish. You know, the way this passage opens, it's talking about he's just like healing people left and right. Everything he does prospers. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. On the other hand, he also winds up nailed to a tree. And the entire point of crucifixion was to make up, make you an example of how not to live your life. You see this guy dying a miserable death? You see his nakedness and frailty on display for you all to take in? Do everything you can to avoid a life that ends up like this. The fact that Jesus winds up here after having lived so faithfully in accordance with God's word It would seem to settle the argument that the laments speak the truth. Indeed, on the cross, Jesus does quote from a lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But of course, even in death, he prospers. It turns out that his faithfulness to God was not merely a wish to avoid death, It was a way to defeat death. The blessings and woes in these verses are rather jarring. They seem counterintuitive, maybe even a little crazy. But Jesus isn't here giving life advice. He's not giving us an assessment of how society works. As I said, he's kind of blowing up that whole way of thinking 
a way of thinking that assumes if I'm wealthy and well-fed and well-liked, that's a sign I must be doing things right. And if you're poor and you're hungry and you're persecuted, you must be doing things wrong. If I'm on top and you're on the bottom, well, that just means God loves us best. With these blessings and woes, Jesus shows us how much, how much he cares about our cultural values. That's not how the universe works. What you possess or what you lack does not determine whether you are blessed. Your cultural values do not determine your value. That's all worthless. And woe to those who think otherwise. What then does determine whether you are blessed? Jesus says, I do. I'm the one who turned crucifixion into coronation. I'm the one who brings eternal life out of death. And I did all that for you, for love of you. That's who determines whether you're blessed. To know, to know that is to know that your life prospers. No matter what else happens, you know you're blessed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.